Technobiotic. Welcome to the Technobiotic Podcast, Episode 3. Join us on our journey to find humanity among technology, with your hosts, Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and Shane Carlson. Hey everybody, this is Shane. I just wanted to take a minute up front at the beginning of this episode to talk about a couple things real quick. First and foremost, this is what we're going to call a very special episode. And in this episode, it's just the three of us, Matt, Laura, and myself, talking about some topics that are personally very important to us. Consider this a content warning of sorts to let you know that what we're going to talk about in this episode is mental health. And not being trained professionals and treating, diagnosing mental health, we don't get so deep. We don't try and give people advice. What we're really doing is talking about our own personal experiences with mental health, some of the things we see ourselves doing, and dig into that. Rest assured that we're not going to get too terribly deep into this topic, that we're going to hit on some deep triggers. We're not going to talk about emotional trauma. Really, it's about the positive and negative effects that technology can have on people's mental health and their day-to-day lives. This is a topic that's near and dear to our hearts, and it's something that we're going to probably continue to explore in various episodes with some of those deep domain experts in the areas of behavioral psychology, mental health and wellness, mindfulness, and subjects of that nature. So, In the meantime, listen to us talk about our personal experiences, some of our observations on what's happening out there with technology and mental health, and some of our fears and concerns personally as we get a little bit vulnerable and talk about these things ourselves. Hello and welcome to the Technobiotic Podcast. This is episode three. For today's episode, what we're going to do is actually just do a little bit of a jam session with our three hosts. Not that we don't have a whole bunch of amazing guests lined up for you, but every once in a while, we just want to talk amongst ourselves here to chat a little bit around particular subject matters. And and this particular one is something we'll probably explore more in the future with a guest around the subject of uh, the technology impact on mental health and mental wellness. But for this first time tackling the subject, we wanted to talk a little bit amongst ourselves, uh, bring a little bit of a personal edge to the whole concept of mental health, mental wellness, and the impact we feel personally that technology has had on our own personal mental health, mental wellness over the years. And so, guys, what do you think of this subject? I know it has the potential to get a little deep and is a very personal thing, but I think it's something as a society we should be talking about a lot more. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, where do you start? Because uh, there are so many different aspects of it, and and those change also depending on your age group. Uh, I know, especially recently, you know, we we keep hearing more and more about the adolescent stage of development actually lasting well into the mid twenties, uh, which is a lot longer and older than than we had ever previously considered. And so, uh, I think with that come different implications. And when you consider the fact that the, the, the millennials and, and Generation Z now are not only the first and earliest adopters of new tech, but they're also the ones developing it. I think the implications are are huge, and it's something that, to your point, we're really not talking about, and, and I think that there are definitely uh, some important conversations that, that need to be had. And just for a quick point of reference here, some of us are still well into our 40s and still developing. <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like that was a that was a dig. I feel like you're kind of <laughs> doing the No, it was it was honestly it was self-deprecation, but if the shoe fits, Mr. Drew, if the shoe fits. No, uh, so as someone who is uh, technically, I guess I'm I'm right on the border of being a millennial, I think. Uh, yes, I'm I'm technically a millennial. Uh, <laughs> um I, it's amazing how many people that I know who are in my age bracket who have created some of this technology or are really heavily invested or really like they're in the trenches of, of this technology and how it affects how they engage with other people. Um, personally for me, I am finding, you know, part of the joke is that I'm a boomer or whatever, is that I find that I really struggle with 
how much technology is being used right now. Because for me personally, it discourages my empathy and my curiosity and my ability to be present in, in real time. And I know that it is an incredibly powerful tool that can be used for good, uh, as we're seeing, like, I don't know if you guys have heard about the Mattel Barbie thing, that they're creating this Barbie that's supposed to be empathetic and, and teaching young children about being, being more, you know, human at a young age, which is kind of cool, but... I feel like with all of all of the content that's out there right now, all of the applications, all of the stuff that's out there right now, it's so easy to feel like like it's a dualistic matter that it's either something that's good or it's something that is dangerous. I'd have to agree kind of all around. I spent a lot of time looking at the positive aspects of technology and what it has the potential to do for our mental health and our mental wellness. And specifically speaking about apps like Headspace, Calm, and others that I actually see being employed more and more even in elementary school. My daughter, she's in middle school now, a sixth grader, but last year as a fifth grader, they started giving them access to apps like Calm to help them deal with things like anxiety to start understanding more about when their anxiety triggers would come in around specific topics, uh, math, other things like that. And giving them time and space to uh, be mindful in the classroom, to self-reflect, to meditate. And I think those tools definitely have some power. And we've touched on that in, in other conversations around biofeedback and the concept of mindfulness and being more self-aware of your own anxieties and your own triggers. But it's very interesting. Earlier today, a gentleman I follow on Twitter named Jabe Bloom uh, posted something about what notifications bring you joy. And that was a very interesting question because for me, there's a very fine line when it comes to notifications on my mobile devices or on my connected technology where joy is countered with anxiety. So if we're talking about a work email that comes in at 6 p.m., uh, that can drive potentially a lot of anxiety, whereas a notification from someone on social media that I don't typically hear from who responds to one of my posts, that can bring me joy. So there's a very fine line, I think, between uh, our technology bringing us joy versus causing us anxiety. And, and I think we're seeing a lot of that reflected in uh, our political discourse. We're seeing that reflected in the anxiety we see in our children and our young folk. We're seeing that in the workplace with folks who uh, are having a hard time dealing with a lot of the overwhelming technology that they have coming at them and the various sources of demand uh, in this digital world. Yeah, and, and I mean, man, you just covered... I mean, we could probably talk about the last uh, few minutes of what you just said uh, over the course of like four episodes. Uh, Maybe we would. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's I mean, that's really that's really what it's all about, right? I mean, that's why we're here. And and I look at it from a couple of different perspectives. Uh, the first one is as a father of a now seven-year-old in first grade. I'm very mindful of the not only the impact that technology could have on my daughter, but also how it can be used as a tool, what the dangers are. Uh, and I'll, I'll be perfectly honest with you. It's, it scares the crap out of me, uh, because you hear more and more about cyberbullying, and it's just that, that aspect, that element of technology that we're experiencing in our everyday lives right now, to your point, especially in our, in our political um, lives and, and, you know, with the, with the political climate of our country right now, it inherently empowers us to, I think maybe, uh, undeservedly take an, a, a voice and take an approach that we wouldn't necessarily, if we were face to face with people. And I, that is, I think, indicative of the role that technology potentially plays among different age groups. Uh, and and it, it really scares me. And so I think as parents, that's something that we talk about at home. And it's something that I feel there needs to be more conversation about, like using technology as a tool and, and playing the active role, not playing an active role, but playing the active role in your child's development specifically uh, in the face of emerging technology. And the other side of it too, you know, you're talking about, 
you're talking about it and we're you know it's more as we start to consider technology as a work tool and something that we help in our lives uh, to be more productive and it's it's kind of that crapshoot right it's that roll of the dice when you pick up your phone i think subconsciously you're anticipating this could either be good or this could be bad and man let's roll the dice and see what we come up with and i think i would take it a step back further because this is <laughs> this is something that is a constant conversation at home why in the hell are you checking your email at 6 30 at night <laughs> You're home, so be home. And so I think, you know, kind of pushing it up the hill a little bit and putting it in in the laps of our employers, what are your expectations realistically and what do you value? Do you value your employees or do you value the impact that they potentially could have at the risk of a high burn rate? Like what's the, what's really the important thing in, in the perspective of the employer? Yeah, and, and in Europe, you even see them legislating, you know, that type of thing into the workplace. Uh, in France in particular, when I was running, uh, working with global teams, it was discouraged to send emails to your French employees or French coworkers after hours for them. And in many cases, some of the businesses went so far as to turn off email access for those employees in those countries after 5 p.m. because they would have to pay them overtime if those folks had to respond to emails and other things. So I think we'll see kind of the technology and the laws starting to catch up a little more as we move through this. But it's very interesting to me kind of the different ways in which employers are reacting to the concept of mental wellness and mental health as part of the as part of their workforce. They're starting to realize that employees are truly their most valuable assets and the peak performers in their company have found ways to deal with their own mental health, their own mental wellness. And if the employer can give them tools to do that, they tend to be more productive. It's very interesting how society sees and reacts to this, uh, specifically going back to this past year, very large coffee company based out of the Seattle area caught a lot of flack in the media for the fact that their employees were voicing the fact that they felt overworked during the holidays, uh, they were understaffed in a lot of the locations, and the corporate answer was to sign them all up for a year of Headspace, I believe it was, to give them access to uh, mental health coping tools and things that, and the blowback from the employees was we don't need access to an app what we need is less hours you know more predictable schedule uh, access to resources to help us in the workplace and, and, and i'm sure some of the folks took advantage of that and will continue to take advantage of that but it's really about that was a good gesture and a good idea that someone somewhere in a boardroom far away from those retail locations may have come up with thinking it would help. And in many cases, it will help some of those folks, but it wasn't necessarily what they were looking for or what they were asking for. So I think not only is technology that has the potential to have a positive impact out there and available, but it needs to be delivered in kind of the right context and the right message and not as a way to well dissatisfaction, if you will, uh, along those lines. Laura, kind of what are yeah, your thoughts? Yeah, I feel like, I feel like it's not necessarily they are, it's not necessarily that they're thinking that it's going to quell or it's going to, you know, put a, they, they truly, I think, believe that that's a band-aid for the issue. There's this naivete or maybe ignorance about the, that mindfulness uh, equals relaxation and that um, the incredible amount of stress that we are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis um, can be solved by just relaxing and just, you know, plugging into meditation for 15 minutes or five minutes or whatever. Um, and that's so, that's helpful to have that practice in your day-to-day -day life, to have a five-minute meditation. It can momentarily reduce your stress levels. It can momentarily shift your brain waves and your body composition. Absolutely. But again, it's, it's the whole shift in your lifestyle. It's the whole shift in your mindset so that if you are working for yourself, that you are catching yourself and you're mindful of each activation that you're making. And that is, is that activation serving your purpose? Is that activation really fulfilling the lifestyle that you're trying to cultivate, this, this lifestyle of mindfulness that 
probably doesn't involve checking your phone at, at six o'clock at night, but because you're working for yourself, the temptation is there. So it's really a reprogramming, which is a little bit about the map size, so I'm not going to go too far into this, but it really is a reprogramming of how we're thinking about all of our engagements so that when we hear our telephone, whether it's a phantom buzz or if it's the actual buzz of our phone, which is a whole other topic with the phantom, I think it's really super important to to shift our thinking about our relationship with the phone or with the device, with, you know, technology in general, so that it is used for good. And I think it's important for us to consciously accept the fact that, like it or not, over time, we have rewired the way that our brains work. And that has a lot to do with it. I mean, I, I, I liken it kind of on one end of it. You know, we talk about the dopamine response when, when you get that, uh, that notification and, you know, you've got that opportunity to check your email. Is it going to be a good one or a bad one? We've conditioned ourselves to have that response. And it goes even as far as, and I'll admit it, I do it every night and my wife does it too. That's kind of how, and it's almost counterintuitive. It's kind of how we relax ourselves and get ourselves to, to, to fall asleep by looking at the device and, you know, scrolling through Pinterest. Her thing is Pinterest. So she gets on Pinterest and that's how she relaxes. The challenge there is that we are learning the blue light that's emitted from the screen of those devices is actually the same wavelength of light in the morning. So what we're actually telling our brains is it's not time to relax. It's time to start waking up. And so you're, you are unknowingly rewiring your brain to not have any idea what sort of circadian rhythm pattern it needs to be following. And when you, when you take it to that level and look at it from that perspective, it's just like, man, without thinking about it, because it's been such a passive adoption of the technology and, and the role that it plays in our lives, we've re really rewired how our brains work. And if we're really going to make personal advancements and use it more as a tool, then I mean, we kind of have to scale it back to, to completely reuse it. And that doesn't come easily. And, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of accepting that and figuring out, all right, so now what? If we're looking at technology as a way to extend our own humanity, we really need to understand the impact that technology has on us as human beings and optimize ourselves and the technology we use to benefit us and not just keep driving us down these very bad pathways for us mentally, for us physically. You know, you talk about that blue light and, and many designers have recognized that, that that blue light and the things that it does to the, the human brain and the programming that it does has led to disruptive sleep patterns. And you start seeing the trends when you look at the, the macro level data as to where the sleep patterns of, of people in society are going. You know, we're awake more throughout the night. Our sleep is less restful. It's more disturbed. And as we, more and more of us start wearing these you know, trackers to get that biofeedback, the more data points we have to reinforce that. And, and I think as, as we learn more and more about this impact that technology has on our physical and mental well-being and the fact that those two things are intrinsically linked together, I think we're going to start seeing potential for much more powerful dialing in of how we use that technology to enhance who we are rather than to drive us into the ground. I'm going to circle back for a minute on something you had touched on on earlier, Matt, because I think it's very important, is the whole concept of cyberbullying or the potential for cyberbullying and what a lot of technology companies are doing to counteract the potential their platforms have to bully you know, mostly impressionable kids. But we see a lot of adult bullying, too, going on. And not to dip too far into the, the political discourse that we see, not only here in the United States, but in Europe and the UK, you know, everywhere across the world, the potential for people to be less human to one another uh, when they have this level of anonymity between themselves and this other human increases exponentially. And the way we treat each other across these semi-anonymized devices and communication channels tends to be, as you pointed out, 
less human than it would be if we were standing there face to face. And and whether we agree with someone face to face, oftentimes we're we're not willing to engage them in a level of, of discourse that is threatening or hostile when we can see their eyes, when we can look at them and recognize them as a human being. And this goes back to some things I used to do to remind myself when this technology first started appearing is there's another human connected to the end of that computer who's typing frantically on their keyboard. And when you remember that, you tend to be a lot more empathetic and a lot more open to the fact that, look, they're attached to this viewpoint, but that viewpoint doesn't represent them as a human being. And I go back to this in the workplace. When we first started having corporate directories that had pictures of the people we worked with, and I was working for a large global organization, and occasionally I'd have to get on the phone and talk to somebody who I had never met in person. So I didn't know what they looked like. I didn't have a mental model in my mind of who they were at that point. So I would pull up their badge picture out of our corporate directory as I was calling them to remind me, hey, this is a human being. This is what that human being looks like. This person probably has a family, they have friends, they have a life outside of work. And reminding yourself of that when you interact with other people through these technology mediums, for me personally, has has helped my empathy in terms of your remembering. Uh, it's a little harder when you're on Twitter and Facebook when all you have is that little thumbnail icon of who this person is and they're yammering at you about uh, some political viewpoint that you expressed or some opinion that you expressed and they have a very passionate counter-argument to what you're talking about. But the same principle applies. When we're interacting with people, whether it's in a physical space, whether it's in a, a, a technical space, etc., it's hard sometimes to remind ourselves that this is a whole and complete human being with their own autonomy, their own opinions, their own everything else. And we don't necessarily need to respect their opinion, but we need to respect their, their person. We need to respect their humanity and recognize that we may never agree on this thing, and you may not agree with the entire premise of what they're doing, but you need to respect their autonomy in some ways. And that's a very fine line. I think a lot of us are trying to figure out where that line is. If someone's arguing to have invalidate the existence of another human being and what that person stands for, for me, it's very hard not to attack that person beyond their ideas, because to me, it shows me that they are devaluing someone else's humanity. And my natural instinct is to go after that individual and their opinions. So I'm trying to be more focused on the opinions. I'm trying to be more focused on recognizing that person's humanity, even though the level of their argument to me is very anti-human. And that's a hard, hard thing for me to do. I don't think you're alone with that. I mean, I think I culturally and, and, you know, I would take it even further than that with, with the rise of technology and the expansion of technology and how uh, more connected we all are, we've sort of lost our ability to talk. We've lost our ability to debate. We've lost our ability to listen to each other. And it's, it's exactly to your point. It's so easy to take something out of context because when, when you're, when you're talking with someone and you can see their, their facial expressions and, and you can hear how they're saying what they're saying, you get a complete, I mean, that's, that's where the majority of communication lies. It's not in the words. It's in how the words are expressed, how the words are conveyed. And when you take that out of the communication equation and you're just left to the words, then the person has to then ascribe their own context into that in order to try to understand where the other person was coming from. And if you start that conversation off with, we don't agree with each other, it's not going to go anywhere good. It's just not. Boy, I learned a, a really important lesson just recently, and it was just such a ridiculous situation. It started off because on one, you know, like on Facebook, they have the, the yard sale or the community, you know, yard sale, giveaway, buy, sell, swap groups, right? Um, used to love these things. Don't, I don't belong to any of them anymore. And it's exactly for this reason. Someone had posted a spam. Uh, they, they, they saw something about a dog treat or dog food that was killing dogs. And first of all, it was like six years old. So it was old news anyways. Second of all, it had been proven a long time ago 
to be spam. It wasn't even real. And I remember seeing this. And so I piped up about it and I said something about it. And just from the perspective of trying to inform people, hey, this isn't real. How dare you try and fact check the internet? <laughs> I know. I know. But someone took that completely out of context and just went completely apoplectic on me to the point where they went onto my employer's Facebook page and started messaging them with screenshots and just this rant about how I need to be fired and I'm this terrible human being. And it's like, dude, what, where, what? No. And, and so I finally uh, took it off and, and just messaged the guy directly to try to get to another level with him to try to help him to understand like, hey, man, you completely took this the wrong way. This is where I was coming from. And it settled him down a little bit. But I could tell that this guy was really hopped up on it. And it, for me, that was a huge wake up call because I think we've all experienced interactions like that. But for me, that was the first time that it ever got to the point of being threatening. And that was a critical moment for me. People take it very personally when you challenge their belief systems. And, and it could be the simplest portion of their belief system. But if they feel threatened or they feel like that belief system is being attacked, they respond very primally. And, it, and it's very, very interesting as someone who considers himself a, a student of human behavior to watch that happen. Because for me, I try to be self-reflective enough to know when I'm getting my hackles raised on something where someone is ch trying to challenge my perspective on something. And I always tend to go towards the, okay, is this something that I need to reevaluate as part of my personal belief system to decide whether or not it's important enough to defend? And a lot of people aren't wired that way. They feel challenged and that, that fight or flight response kicks in and they just go on the attack, feeling like they've been attacked, so they need to attack back. And that's not how polite humans should discourse. Well, I think, Shane, that really goes back to the whole idea that Matt was talking about. You mentioned it just in passing about listening. And I think that's, that's to me, the root of where communication has gone wrong. Because our parasympathetic nervous systems are always on the go, we're always in this fight-or-flight state, we've kind of dismissed the importance of just listening, which in any conversation is really the most important thing. If you're not actually listening truly listening, not just hearing, then you can't actually have a great conversation. <laughs> you know, then you're just tossing, talking back and forth at each other and it's meaningless conversation. You're not going to unravel the ball, if you will. That has definitely been a hard thing for me to learn. Very early on, I thought it was important to speak a lot and listen less to appear smart. One of the things that I have learned in 20 plus years of doing this professionally is to be perceived as an intelligent individual sometimes, the less you say in a conversation where you're learning about someone, the more respected your opinions are when you express them become, and, and that's, that's powerful. I mean, that's where you truly start to learn as an individual. Ditto. <laughs> it's being more of a receiver and a student than someone who's trying to explain something or have their point heard. It goes back to, to your point, Laura, active listening. You know, are we listening to learn or are we listening to formulate a response? And that comes back to the root of what is your intent and what's important and why? Because the, the subconscious communication is happening constantly. We already know when we're talking with someone, whether we, we have pretty clear indication of where that conversation is going to go from the very beginning. And so that's when I think that cognitive switch happens where we start, if we weren't already listening to respond rather than listening to learn. I don't care about your perspective. I want you to understand my perspective. And that is a, it feels like that's a disconnect and a gap that's widening constantly in our society. Agreed. And I think part of it is, part of it's just the nature of our society right now, because we have all of these stimulants, we're, we're driven to be in this constant state of, of fight or flight. And so it's, you know, you, you are in a rush to survive. You want to make sure you have the right answers, that you check all the boxes, that you impress the person that you're supposed to impress. And then at the end of the day, you say, holy shit, wait, I didn't actually, you know, 
I didn't take care of myself. I wasn't actually kind to that person who I should have been kind to. Um, I didn't really express that idea that was bubbling in the very back of my head because I was so in a rush to say the right thing during that meeting. Um, you know, and I think it's just, it's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of people who are willing to help cultivate a society of patience, a, a space of patience and, and of listening. And it's going to be a slow reworking of how we are living our lives and how we are handling conversations. And I think, you know, starting at a micro level where we're re-choreographing our conversations, where we are maybe allowed to listen more, um, could be good. <laughs> but I think it's, it's going to be, you know, we need leaders in our society to be making these changes. And I think that leaders like Headspace are doing a great job. I think that starting with the Barbie doll toy is really awesome, but I think it extends way beyond the idea of meditation. So it's a great place to start, but I want to know, you know, what else can we do? Well, who else? Not just meditation apps, not just meditation teachers or yoga teachers or these uh, neuroscientists that are claiming, oh, you, if you do X, you get why, you know, because that's ultimately the same thing. We don't, we cannot live in a way that is prescribing something and expecting, um, expecting an immediate result. It's not a color by number process. And if we are expecting that color by number equation, then we're going to be sorely disappointed and we're going to be right back in the rat race of, I need to achieve this and so let me go to the gym 17 times a week and meditate and eat all of the greens and I'm super stressed out and I hate myself because I don't have a great relationship with my partner or my family or whatever or self. Go back to the conversation we had with Clint Jolly recently and Matt you were talking about you know watching things on Instagram and not being getting frustrated because you can't achieve the same results. And if we can't even all individually follow a recipe and come up with the same outcome as a society, what makes us think that we can take this prescriptive, you know, self-help advice and each become billionaires overnight, each become mentally well-adjusted, etc.? You know, this is something, you know, we're all in this together, but we're all on our own journeys. And we need to recognize that individuality and the concept you talked about earlier, Laura, about the, the concept of creating space, creating space for other people to feel comfortable, creating space for yourself to create a level of self-awareness. All of these things are so vital and so important, and we're just starting to scratch the surface and talk about it as a society, um, which kind of leads me to these other things. You know, we're just now talking about these things. Mental health is something that has been so taboo for so many years as a society and i think especially for you know matt and i i'll draw a corollary here for us is we're we're of a very similar age we grew up with that bootstrap mentality that you know admitting any sort of 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 mental health weakness in any way was frowned upon right you know tough it out you know walk it off you know i, I can come up with a hundred phrases that were beaten into our skulls as young boys growing up in the 70s and 80s that you know we could throw on here is just these ridiculous things when we look at it now and even still most of the people i grew up with most of you know people i would consider peers growing up with from childhood still have that mentality and it shows through in in their relationships it shows through in how they interact with other human beings in the workplace. It shows through in their politics and who they pick and choose uh, because they don't want to appear weak. They don't want to appear less than in their minds than someone else. And to me, the most amazing people I have met on this journey of life are the ones who are highly self-aware, who are highly empathetic, who have no problems being transparent about their own struggles and their own uh, mental health issues that they've had. And to me, that's powerful. When we share something like that about ourselves, that's something that has traditionally been so very personal, there's power in that. There's power in it for us to lift that burden off of ourselves and show other people our, vulnerabil our vulnerability and our potential weaknesses and to have them share their own stories uh, because they feel safe because you've shared something about yourself. They feel sh safe oftentimes sharing that. Yeah. And I, anything that I think we can do with technology to help that sharing, I think is really potentially very powerful and transformative of us as a society. It's kind of one of the things that's been bouncing around in my head as we've been talking is, uh, and first of all, let me back up to your point. Nobody is ever alone. Doesn't matter what you're going through, what the circumstances are, the circumstances and the flavor and the spices might be a little bit different, 
but it's not the first time someone's tasting that dish. It's not. I think that what it all comes back to is cultivating that culture of self-awareness and support kind of leads to the, to the bigger question that I've been thinking about is, you know, we've been talking about some of the different examples and symptoms, but what are some things that we can do to start taking steps toward that end and toward some resolution or, you know, I, I don't know that we could go as far as to say solution because I don't know that that necessarily fits. You know, this isn't necessarily a systemic problem society needs to a, a, a approach and solve, but it's something that we need to be cognizant of and we need to be mindful of. But how do we do that? What are the actions we can take? I know that, you know, I'm not 40 years old, but I did, <laughs> I did, uh, have the honor and luxury of growing up in a similar way where there was, it was a no bullshit, no crying is for babies, don't be a candy ass kind of, uh, kind of mentality. I love my mom. She's wonderful, but she is, uh, she's first generation, generation American, Hungarian. She's a very intense lady. <laughs> and there was just, there was no wiggle room for feeling and crying, or at least it took a different shape. And it challenged me to to reconfigure how I related with people. I mean, with my peers, you know, going through middle school where there was an obvious difference where they were okay with crying. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Why are they crying? That's stupid. Like, <laughs> you know? And I had to realize for myself, because I was, I was becoming this jerk, I realized that, you know, just it didn't feel nice to myself to be looking at people in this way that I that I had been trained to do so. That was kind of a funky space for me to be in. But going back to what you were talking about, Matt, you know, I think what I had to relearn for myself to become more empathetic, to become more just human, more kind, more authentic, was just taking the first step for myself to, to recognize I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make one tiny step in the right direction to show someone else that I'm going to be empathetic or I'm going to be the bigger person and take the really scary risk about being vulnerable and sharing my guts and saying, hey, that, that was really scary for me. Or, you know, what you're doing, what you're telling me, that makes me feel really uncomfortable or I'm not really ready for that right now. Those are things that, you know, not everyone really wants to say in their day-to-day -day life or in a meeting, say, hey, look, to your boss, I'm not really sure how to do this. Can we work through this together? Taking that baby step to say that, hey, I don't get this, or I'm human, or that was a really nice thing on, on a positive side of things can help to, to show other people uh, in a small dose that it's okay to be human. And then it kind of unfolds and hopefully snowballs from there. I think, you know, taking the baby steps, as the French say, petit à petit, l'oiseau fait son nid, little by little, the bird builds his nest. You can't have the whole nest in one shot. And if you think you're going to be cozy in a big, giant log, then, well, you're poorly, you know, it's going to be really uncomfortable. I think taking the baby steps is the biggest, going to be the most helpful thing. It's very powerful. I, I've been exploring the concept of change and how humans change for the better part of my professional career. And a mentor of mine, probably almost 20 years ago now, we we're sitting there talking about, you know, how do you how do you get people to change, right? Change is very, very hard. And, you know, we had, we had read a bunch of books by John Cotter and The Heart of Change and all of these different things to try and really understand the psychology of change and why people are resistant to change, even though they can recognize they're in a situation that is not ideal for them. And even when you show them where things can potentially be positive for them, it's often very hard for them to make the decision to change. And, and he kind of drew a picture for me. He said, look, change is a very individual thing. Someone has to make a decision to change. And the decision itself can be immediate, right? There's a moment where someone decides, I want to make this change. But the journey of change is long and hard and very difficult and people who have made that decision in the past and who have gone through that journey of change understand that and that's where the fear and the uncertainty comes in around getting to that point where you snap your fingers and decide you're going to change the behavioral change that comes along with it is a much harder much longer thing and one of the most powerful things I'd ever heard about the concept of humans changing came from a behavioral psychologist I was working with in an organizational design capacity. And she said, she said, look, 
when it comes to people changing, people need to see themselves in the story. It's one thing to paint a picture of how much better this thing is going to be for this organization or this corporation or this group that you're trying to change as a whole. But each individual in that group needs to understand what that means to them. They need to see themselves in the story of the vision that you're painting for that. And to me, that was powerful. That helped me truly understand the mindset people need to be in to decide to change. And you need to show them, this is how your life is going to be better. It's going to be better in these ways. And oh, by the way, it's not going to be all sunshine and roses. There may be some parts of this that are going to be hard. This is a journey. This isn't a destination. This is something you're going to have to consciously go into and decide that you want to change and be a part of. And I think when it comes to mental health, when it comes to embracing the things that will help us be better humans, empathy, self-awareness, mindfulness, all of these tools that we have in our toolbox, people have to figure out for themselves where those tools fit and how they're going to make their lives better. And I think the more examples that we have as a society that hold that up as to how that helped them and how it could potentially help other people, I think the easier it's going to be to have these conversations. The whole idea of inviting them to change, inviting them the opportunities to change rather than prescribing them change is so much stronger, so much more powerful than a prescription uh, because it will be uncomfortable. It will be like there's you could be 99% of the way down the road to achieving your change, your your ideal uh, fantasy space where you want to be ending up, and all of a sudden you face this massive hurdle that, that you weren't expecting, and it's always going to be challenging. There's always going to be stuff. The further a field you're going from where you are right now, the further down the change road you're going to go, the more hurdles because you're just not you're not prepared for all of those things that you just don't have the experience of and and you learn through those experiences and it's your choice as you go through that journey your journey if you want to take a different road or if you want to learn how to jump over that fence or if you want to learn that maybe that fence isn't quite as high as you were expecting it to be there's a correlation to different aspects of growth and development and just overall health and and well-being it's it's really kind of seeing the forest for the trees and breaking it down. I need to lose 30 pounds. Man, that's a huge undertaking. It's going to take a lot of work. Man, and you know what? I got this 30 pounds on me because I don't like to work that hard. So, (laughs) but when you break it down into, yeah, maybe, uh, maybe don't eat that Twinkie. It's just shorter, smaller, little objectives. Whoa, whoa, like whoa, that. whoa! Let's let's not start attacking Twinkies uh, now. Let's <laughs> let's leave the Twinkies alone. I had a alone. feeling that was going to strike a nerve. <laughs> but but you know, or and, and even even you know, making small changes because they all add up. A coworker of mine, actually the same gentleman that uh, that found the the tacos in the tire shop in Mexico City, he said to me just last week, the company, the job will take as much time as you're willing to give it and it will never be enough. You have to make the conscious decision to give it as much as it needs and then the mindfulness and the sense of self enough to say, now it's time for me to spend that time on me and my family. Because if you don't, just naturally we're going to wind up giving it more time than it needs because we don't think about it. That's the whole, that's the whole thing. We're so used to and accustomed and conditioned to have that cell phone in our hands at all time that if we don't consciously make the decision to put it down, we never will. And so I think that's really where it starts is just making the small decisions for the greater picture and then stopping to reevaluate periodically and see the progress that you've made and use that as your momentum and your motivation using the sum of all those small wins as motivation to keep them going and then gradually get bigger wins and it's tough it's difficult but you know how do you eat an elephant bite at a time, right? And and so I think... And with a lot of friends. <laughs> and ketchup. Otherwise, you might become the elephant. <laughs> <laughs> One of the hardest lessons I've had to learn is where are my own personal limits? 
you know, especially when it comes to work-life balance. How do you establish healthy boundaries? Because as a person, I'm all about helping other people, pleasing other people, saying yes to things that make sense. Saying no is harder for me, a lot harder. And establishing boundaries to protect my own mental wellness and my own personal wellness and also to protect other people when I overcommit myself has been one of the hardest things I've had to learn. And, and I'm still working on that. Establishing boundaries and knowing personal limits is one of the hardest things I've had to learn in my human life. It's one of the things that I have to consciously reevaluate. Am I taking on too much? Have I said yes to too many things? Have I, have I overburdened myself in such a way that it's going to affect my personal relationships with other people? And that's something that I think many of us struggle with. If, if somebody has an app for that, please send it to me. Uh, because I haven't found one yet. Stay tuned. <laughs> Truly, there there may be an app for that in the coming weeks. I know both of you are talking a little bit about the whole cell phone thing. And just a little sidebar, on my telephone, on the lock screen, I put on text that said, why am I in your hand? And just a little, you know, a little reminder to me, because it was fascinating, just, just a game to see how many times I would reach for my phone and I would see that. And it would be this, you know, this little, oh, well, you know, you, you're just reaching for your phone because it's the mind's temptation to check on social media or check on email or, you know, do you really, do you really need to be looking at your phone right now? Um, so Charlie and I were talking actually about creating like a whole series of different uh, of lock screens, lock screen images that we can put on the MAPS website. Uh, <laughs> So maybe we can share some of those if people are interested. That's great. <laughs> That's great. And potentially very powerful. And I, I actually encourage you to do that. And I will be one of the first right. downloaders because that is something that, that I struggle with. And it's very interesting. You talk about those little subtle things that remind us of whether the thing we're doing at that moment is important relative to everything else we're doing. And I look at the little things like, you know, Apple in the, I think a year or two ago, started giving you weekly screen updates time. on your yeah. average daily screen time. And it is very interesting when you, you get those weekly reports on a Sunday evening while you're checking work email uh, in anticipation of the work that's coming towards you Monday morning. And you get that little reminder. It's like, hey, your screen time was up 25% this week. You've spent an average of six hours a day on your phone or eight hours a day or 10 hours a day. And you look at that and you go, that is a third of my life. That is a third of every day. Uh, and considering I spend a third of my day, well, much less than a third of my day sleeping, but you're supposed to be spending a third of your day sleeping, a third of your day working, and a third of your day spending time on your own things, you know, based off of our historical legacy societal constructs. Uh, but the reality is if you're spending a third of your day on your phone, which I'm often guilty of, and then what are you not doing in that time? And just having subtle little reminders like that to help influence your behavior I think is potentially powerful so long as that that nudge is being used for the gain of the individual and not of nudging you towards other behaviors to benefit some other entity, you know, uh, some corporation or to, you know, mine data from you that is going to help influence your behavior even more and more in the future towards, you know, being a much better consumer to being a, a better cog in the system. But if we use those things for good and to help us be more reflective of our own personal behaviors, to help us focus on things that are going to be beneficial to us, our relationships and the people around us, then I think there's a lot of potential for good. In the meantime, we need to watch that. We need to be skeptical of it. And we definitely need to make sure we're looking at it holistically as how is this going to help me and, and in my sense of self and my sense of, of mental health, mental wellness, etc. Because when we don't, it has the potential to get away from us very quickly. Laura, why don't you send your, your lock screen background to Shane to upload to the website? Sure, totally. Yeah, I will do that. We'll do that. <laughs> Absolutely. And maybe maybe I'll make an I'll make a second one just so I'll make a different variation of it. It's a little bit cheeky or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. It and maybe we'll brand it with the podcast logo. Ah, okay. <laughs> and so the first see see, and since we're at the end of the episode here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make a pledge that the first person who actually posts on social <laughs> media a picture of their lock screen on their phone with Laura's fancy <laughs> technobiotic podcast <laughs> nudge reminder 
I will give them a $10 gift certificate to that large coffee company based out of Whoa, Seattle. Whoa, that's a deal and a <laughs> so, half. <laughs> so if you get to, so if you've you've if you've st- stuck with us this far during our very special episode, uh, there's a reward in it for you. So remember, you know where to tweet us at Technobiotic. We'll be yeah. looking for it. So with that, thank you guys for another amazing episode. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your vulnerability. Thank you for making space for each and every one of us as we go through and talk and figure out how to how to navigate this weird half duplex world where we're all trying to anticipate who's about to speak and who's not about to speak. <laughs> and thank you for being amazing co-hosts and thank you for being on this right journey. On. So everybody have a you great too. day. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. On behalf of my fellow hosts, Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and myself, Shane Carlson, we'd like to thank you for listening. Be sure and check out our website at www.techno-biotic.com and be sure to follow us on all the usual social media outlets. Until next time. Technobiotic.